Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Good evening and welcome to the History of Germany podcast. I'm Travis Dow. Today we're going to start with the Iron Age, finally. We're going to go through the early Iron Age. This is the third part of the mini of my mini-series on the Celts. Before we get started, I'd like to clarify one thing. And this is one thing that's been on my mind for the entire Celts mini-series, even trying to think about it and trying to think about what I'm going to say about them. And namely, that is the problem that there is no such thing as the Celts. I know this, but use the word anyways on purpose. And it's really hard to differentiate Germanic peoples from Celtic or pre-Celtic peoples because the archaeological evidence just doesn't hold that up. I've been trying to give some origin theories of Germanic and Celtic peoples, namely, according to the theories, you know, one that one people started in Northern Europe, like Scandinavia, and the other in Central Europe. And then they met somewhere and overlapped in Germany. But that's obviously a very big simplification. In fact, Germanic tribes were very different from place to place from each other. And the archaeological evidence just doesn't show how different or similar they really were. Then there was more of a smooth gradient between Scandinavia and faraway places like Ireland and even Spain. No borders, no big lines in the sand with a sign that says, here we speak Celtic languages. So basically what I'm trying to say is the boundaries were really blurry. I just want to make that clear. So just to clarify, I am oversimplifying. The truth is very complex and in fact largely unknown, which is why I'm trying to make this a easy, digestible kind of miniseries. So that being said, Today I want to cover Hallstatt and get into, start the Laten cultures. The Laten were basically the peoples that the Roman conquered and absorbed, and those are off, often the people that we think of as Celts. But really, Hallstatt and Laten are just archaeological sites of basically the same people. Again, as the, as the Tumulus culture was a slow shift to the Yernfield culture, and then to the Hallstatt and Laten, the only reason we call them different things is based off of burial practices or villages near sites, like Hallstatt is an Austrian city, Austrian town, so really one continuous people. It'd be like as if someone 3,000 years from now finding London, finding one layer of Paris from 1400 and then another layer from 2014 and think of them as different cultures and call them different things, like the horse people and the iPhone people, or whatever. That basically tells us nothing of Parisians in 1400 or of Parisians in 2014, so it's really kind of the same thing. So are we starting to get the picture? But one such arbitrary line in the sand is the switch from bronze to iron in weapons and household items in archaeological digs. So the Bronze Age is what I covered last time, the Urnfielders, and then in the Iron Age, 
we call the same people Hallstatt, and then chronologically a little later, the same people we call them Laten. And again, it's not really clear where the Celts end and the Germanic people start. But for now, so that people know what you're talking about, let's just call them Celts. So the Hallstatt culture is dated to about 8th to 6th century BC, basically again the early Iron Age. And now some people would already start saying Proto-Celtic. To clarify where they're from or where we, we have this culture, think of an area from Bohemia, modern-day Czech Republic, and kind of straight west and southwest to the Upper Rhine, also straight down to Vienna and that area. So it's named for its type site, Hallstatt, which is a lakeside village in the Austrian Salzkammergut, southeast of Salzburg. And in 1846, Johann Georg Ramsauer discovered a large prehistoric cemetery near Hallstatt, Austria, which he excavated during the second half of the 19th century, and eventually some 1,045 burials were found in that cemetery. And even way back in the Altstadt uh, culture's time, the region was already important because of its salt. The community at Hallstatt exploited this, the salt mines, which had been worked from time since the Neolithic period, but the style and decoration of the grave of the grave goods found in the cemetery are very distinctive, and artifacts made in this style are widespread throughout Europe, so that's why we speak of a culture. There's things in common and, you know, kind of a distinctive um, artifacts and finds in that, in that place. So the Hallstatt period, again, we, we mentioned in the first episode that there's Hallstatt A, Hallstatt B, so the Hallstatt period itself is H-A-C and H-A-D, so 8th to 5th centuries, roughly, B.C. And again, that's the European Iron Age. Now, Hallstatt C is characterized by the first appearance of iron swords, again. And then also, we have inhumation and cremation co-occur. So remember, the Urenfielders were pretty big into cremation, and then towards the end of the Bronze Age kind of abandoned that and started in inhuming or burying people again. And then the final phase, Hallstatt D, there's basically only daggers that are found in grave sites instead of big iron weapons and swords and stuff. And then there's also another kind of shift in differences in pottery and brooches. And then burials were now mostly inhumations instead of cremations. Often you'll see the Hallstatt culture split into an eastern and a western zone, and there's, there's some differences there, so it's, it's important to bring up. The dividing line is kind of goes through Czech Republic and Austria, and there there is a sort of difference in burial rites and grave goods. In the western zones, members of the elite were buried with sword, swords or daggers, especially later on, it's daggers, and in the eastern zone with an axe. And then the western zone has those chariot burials, which I already brought up last episode, so the Urenfielders started this basically. And in the eastern zone, warriors are frequently buried in full armor. So there, there is definitely some differences, um, even though it's kind of happening at the same time period. And then, because we do see a spread of the culture, of these kind of proto-Celtic culture, and, and also potentially language, um, there, it is assumed that there was kind of population and trade movements, probably both, and which spread this Hallstatt culture all the way into the, the Iberian Peninsula, Britain, Ireland, and it is probable that 
the language kind of played a role in this. So this the culture kind of shifted with the language. So, and I'll get back into that. So a few shows ago, I mentioned some inscriptions of Celtic languages. Now this is the place to kind of get into that a little bit more. So in Northern Italy, the Golaseca culture developed with continuity from the Canigret culture, and the Canigret represented a completely new cultural dynamic to the area. And again, this is kind of expressed in pottery and bronze work, and it falls into a, a kind of Western example of the Western Hallstatt culture. And then the Lepontic Celtic languages, now we have some inscriptions of this Lepontic Celtic language, uh, in the area, and they show the language of the Golaseca culture was clearly Celtic, making it probable that even as early as 13th century BC, there's some sort of precursor language, some sort of Celtic language, at least in the Western Hallstatt culture. So again, okay, fair enough, we are talking about Celts even in a linguistic sense. And then we also have evidence of trade with Greece, and because you, you, we have finds of the Attic black figure pottery in the elite graves of the late Hallstatt period. And this was probably imported via Marseille, which was a Greek colony. And other imported luxuries include amber, ivory, and probably wine. Now, the settlements were mostly fortified, situated on hilltops, and often included workshops of bronze, silver, and goldsmiths. Typical sites are the Hoyneberg on the Upper Danube, which is surrounded by nine very large, large grave tumuli, but also there's examples in France and Slovakia. And in the central Hallstatt region, towards the end of the period, we have very rich graves of high-status individuals. Again, these large tumuli, and all around these kind of hilltop settlements, and again, containing these chariots and horse bits, yokes, um, kind of some similarities to the Sumerian knights, uh, which were basically Eurasian nomads. And also elaborate jewelry made of bronze and gold, as well as, a, as stone stelae, which, as an example, see the famous warrior of Hirschlanden, and which was also kind of found in this burial context. Now, the warrior of Hirschlanden is the oldest known Iron Age, sort of life-size human statue north of the Alps. So once the Greek uh, founded the colony of Marseille in southern France, you have a kind of trade and penetration by Greek and Etruscan culture somewhere around after 600 BC. And this resulted in kind of long-term trade relationships and a sort of a whole impact on the whole economy in the region. And these, these trade networks kind of traveled up the Rhone Valley which also kind of triggered social and cultural transformations in the Hallstatt settlement north of the Alps. Now you start to get kind of powerful local chiefdoms which emerged, and these were kind of the guys which controlled the redistribution of luxury goods which came from the Mediterranean. And this kind of society shift is really characteristic of the Latin culture. So the, ch the chieftains were basically the people that can control the imports coming from the Mediterranean and kind of, um, you know, have some input on, um, you know, who gets what and just, you know, basically more basically kind of rich individu individuals and, and at least originally got rich through trade. But so why do we even bother with the word Celt? If it's, I mean, it's clearly wrong in some ways. If we're speaking of linguistics, it really is a thing. So people have just been 
tying languages to archaeological site and maybe too stringently. And this, this has kind of been a problem, but partially even for political reasons in the 19th and 20th century. And while this is all sort of interesting, right now I think it'll just kind of be a distraction. So we can look at that again when I look at sort of 19th century nationalism. But um, if we wanted to find Celts, there's a couple ways we can do this. So first of all, you know, basically the, the standard definition is that they're an ethno-linguistic group. And, you know, they... they we kind of define them as a tribal societies and Iron Age, and then also, of course, medieval Europe. And but basically, the fundamental um, definition is that they spoke Celtic languages, and there were some similar cultural connections throughout all these kind of Celtic peoples. So the exact geographic spread of ancient Celts is really disputed. So in particular, whether the Iron Age inhabitants of Britain and Ireland should be regarded as Celts has is kind of controversial. So if you listen to the British History Podcast or even the History of English, which is about the English language, you'll get a picture that there were pre-Celtic peoples on the British Isles and that Celts were not the first peoples there. And therefore, there's a lot more going on genetically than just calling the peoples themselves Celtic even if the languages are Celtic. So, you know, Gaelic and Welsh, those are definitely Celtic languages today and throughout medieval Europe. But um, going way back to the Iron Age, that might have been a very different situation. So by the time the Romans took over the place, the Celts, either language, art, influence, whatever, had spread over all of the British Isles and much of continental Europe to faraway corners, again, as far as Iberian Peninsula, the, Celti the Celtiberians, the Celtici, the Galizzi, and northern Italy, the Golasecans, and the Cisalpine Gauls, and following the Gallic invasion of the Balkans in 279 BC, even as far east as central Anatolia. And that's where we get the Galatians, as in of biblical pen pal fame. So, but aside from a few inscriptions, here or there, Celtic literary traditions doesn't really begin until the 8th century with Old Irish texts. So there's, we get, start to have coherent texts of early Irish literature, such as the Cattle Raid of Cooley, and then especially in the 12th century we get, and these survive through kind of 12th century copies. By the first millennium AD, we have the expansion of the Roman Empire and the Great Migrations, you know, like the, the really famous migration period of Germanic peoples. And then we also have Celtic culture, insular Celtic, had become restricted to Ireland at this point. The western and northern parts of Great Britain, like Wales, Scotland, Cornwall, and also the Isle of Man, Brittany. And between the 5th and 6th centuries, the Celtic-speaking communities in these Atlantic regions emerged as a sort of reasonable, cohesive cultural entity. As in, now they really are defining themselves as such because they're defining themselves as not Roman. And they find they have more in common with each other than with Romans. So now they kind of self-identify as Celtic. Um, but really for the first time. And really only at that point do we start to see our modern notions of Celtic being absolutely distinct from Germanic. Let me rephrase that, or let me emphasize that. So not until the 5th to 8th centuries do people kind of self-identify 
Celtic as being distinct from Germanic. I really want to emphasize that because before that it was really kind of a gradient and people might self-identify as their tribe name or their family name or whatever and you had a lot of um, Celtic people marrying um, Germanic peoples and there just really wasn't a big difference. There might be a huge difference from someone say between from Ireland and Bohemia and they definitely wouldn't call themselves the same thing but one would not be Germanic and the other one would not be Celtic. So you know again it's really murky but our modern notions really do not reach back before at the very earliest, the 5th century AD. And this show is taking place a thousand years before that. So I just kind of want to make that clear. Um, at some point, we are talking about common linguistics and also religious and artistic heritage that distinguished distinguish them from the culture of the surrounding kind of peoples. So by the 6th century, we have this, the continental Celtic languages were kind of dying out, but the Germanic ones were starting to thrive, or were really still thriving. So Celtic identity was constructed as part of the Romanticist Celtic revival in Great Britain, Ireland, and European territories, such as Portugal and even Spanish Galicia. So like today, we still have Irish, Scottish, Gaelic, Welsh, Breton, are all still spoken in parts of their historical territories, and then we have kind of Cornish and Manx are starting to undergo a revival. Okay, fine, but again, so why do we call them Celts? Where does the word come from? Well, the first recorded use of the name Celts as, as Keltoi to refer to a specific group of people was by Hecatios of Miletus, the Greek geographer, in 517 BC, and he was writing about a people living near Marseille, so southern France. And then according to the testimony of Julius Caesar and then Strabo, the Latin name Celtus, plural like Celti or Celte, and the Greek were borrowed from a native Celtic tribal name. Pliny the Elder cited its use in Lucid Lusitania as a tribal surname, like a family name. And there have been some findings that kind of confirm this. So, so the word did exist. No, someone didn't just make it up. But more specifically, you might have heard of the Gauls. So in Latin, Gaulus, a Gaulus or plural Galli, might also stem from a Celtic ethnic or kind of tribal name originally. And perhaps one borrowed into Latin during the Celtic expansions into Italy during the early 5th century BC. Its roots may be the common Celtic galno, meaning power or strength. Hence, Old Irish gal, which means like boldness or ferocity, and Welsh galu, like as in to be able or even power. And the tribal names of galesi or Greek galatai, which was Latinate. Latinized to Galate, which, again, we have the Galatia and Anatolia, and these are all probably due to the same origin at some point. Now, here's a really important point. So, those classical writers did not apply the term Celte to the inhabitants of Britain or Ireland. So, this has led some scholars to kind of back away from that when talking about the Iron Age. Again, 
But if you're talking about the Middle Ages, a good 2,000 years later, or uh, you know, at least 1,500 or 1,000 years later, fine, there's Celts on the British Isles. But in the Iron Age, people kind of avoid that. So, if, so specifically in English, Celt is a modern English word first attested in 1707 in the writing of Edward Lloyd. And his work, along with that of other late sort of 17th century scholars or kind of turn of the turn of the 18th century scholars, brought academic attention to the languages and history of the early Celtic inhabitants of Great Britain. So basically, it took all the way to the 18th century for anyone on the British Isles to be called Celtic. Okay, so again, not the Iron Age, but the English form Gaul which again was first recorded in the 17th century, they do come from the French Gaul or Gaulois, a borrowing from Frankish Valholant, land of foreigners or Romans. Okay, so you can, you can look up the etymology of Gaul, and the root of which is, is probably a Proto-Germanic, again, Franks were Germanic, okay? So Proto-Germanic Valha, or foreigner, or even Celt, which the like the English word Welsh, and uh, this again has come. Uh, I've heard this on the History of English podcast. Um, the Welsh comes from the Anglo-Saxon Welisk or Weliska, something like that, or even the South German Welsh, meaning Celtic speaker or French speaker or Italian speaker in different contexts, and all and even Old Norse Valskir or Valir which kind of you could translate as Gaulish or French. And then Proto-Germanic, Valha, is derived ultimately from the name of the Volkai, which were a Celtic tribe who lived first in the south of Germany and emigrated then to Gaul. So kind of, you know, took a, a southwestern move at some point. This means that English Gaul, despite its superficial similarity, is not actually derived from Latin Gallia though it does refer to the to the same ancient region. So it, you know, it, it kind of works out that way. It's, it's all good, but it definitely is kind of a coincidence. So um, Romans called Gauls one thing, but the English kind of comes more from the Old German, Anglo-Saxon, that kind of branch of, of kind of a Germanic etymology. Now, again, within archaeology, when referring to Celts, or let's say Celtic, it's more of a certain style of artifacts, and this is because of Celtic inscriptions found in some of those same sites. So Celtic, I have no problem with saying Celtic languages because that is a thing, and then just it happens to be that in some of these archaeological finds you have some inscriptions, so they've taken Celtic to mean the people. But again, Besides material artifacts, there are assumptions about Celtic material artifacts, social organization, even the homeland or origin and mythology, but genetically they may not have been one people. They probably shared languages and cultures and beliefs, but still it's, it's hard to say there was any kind of Celtic unity whatsoever, just as there were no Germanic peoples kind of unity at any point really. But okay, to follow convention a little, let me give you the standard definition of the Laten. The Laten culture developed and flourished during the late Iron Age from about 450 BC to the Roman conquest in the first century BC. And we're talking Eastern France, Switzerland, Austria, 
Southwest Germany, Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Hungary. So that whole kind of swath of Central and, and Eastern Europe. And again, again, it developed out of the Hallstatt culture to the point of not really being a different culture at all. There was no definitive cultural break. You know, it, the, maybe the difference was that they had more of a Mediterranean influence from Greek and later Etruscan civilizations. So there was kind of a shift of settlement centers which took place in the 4th century. The Western Latin co corresponds to historical Celtic Gaul. Okay, so basically one and the same thing. Um, in future episodes, I'll probably drop Latin, maybe not the next episode, but uh, you know, I'll start talking more about Celtic Gaul and I'll drop the Latin because that's purely an, uh, an archaeological term. And when we start talking about Romans, you know, they didn't call the Gauls Latin culture, so I won't either. But whether this means that the whole of Latin culture can really be attributed to a unified Celtic people, it's really hard to say. So I, you know, I wouldn't say either way. I mean, even even political affiliation, um, language, even material culture, they didn't necessarily have much in common. There were there were some parallels and some connections, but it's really hard to say how much. There was a lot of kind of localized beliefs and norms and cultures um, and even distinct artistic expressions which just didn't cover the whole area. So while Latin definitely is associated with the Gauls, the presence of Latin artifacts could just be because of cultural contact and even trade and doesn't necessarily imply permanent presence of Celtic speakers. So the, bringing up the Latins, this brings us all the way up to the Romans. So for now, how about we stop here, and next time, let's dive into what the Romans had to say about whoever these peoples were. After we start to do that, our mini-series on the Celts will come to a close, and I don't know if I'll make it in one or two more shows, but the Romans also have quite a bit to say about the Germanic peoples, obviously, of the same time period. So after I, after I finish the miniseries on the Celts, I might do a special episode or two, and then we'll just continue on with Roman sources of the Germanic peoples and kind of take stock of where we are around the first century BC. So that's kind of where we're headed. For now, thank you very much for listening. I wanted to say that thank you so much for, first of all, writing in. For those of you who have, I've, I've received some great feedback and support on, on Twitter and email and Facebook and all kinds of places. And also, I really appreciate the reviews I've gotten on iTunes. That's fantastic. I've, um, you know, we're quickly catching up with how many reviews I've gotten on History of Alchemy, and that show's been going on for almost two years. So I'm really impressed with um, the kind of level of, of interaction I'm getting with you guys. So absolutely keep it coming. And it really does help to, to review us. And I would absolutely love to hear from you. So by all means, if you got ideas or feedback or whatever, let me know how I'm doing. And I definitely got a, a plan figured out for the near future. But if you'd like to hear something, I can probably, I'll work it into my schedule after that. But for now, thank you very much for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.